the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. Well, it's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hi, all, and welcome to the return of the Tree of the Back podcast here in 2021. Brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. After a little bit of a winter break, that would be the envy of Jürgen Klopp and all struggling Inish football managers out there. We are back in the studio to pick up the pieces of what's been a long and eventful January in the world of football. Since we last spoke, Klopp's Liverpool are suddenly feeling the pinch. Frank has been booted from Stamford Bridge. And Oli has Manchester United on the top of the league. Meaning Enda has finally forced us back into the studio to wax lyrical about his beloved Man United. How are you, lads? Good, yeah, thanks. thanks. So, like I said, it's been a busy enough month, um, none more so than for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who sees his Manchester United rise to the top of the Premier League, knocking out Liverpool in the FA Cup and appearing to justify the club's decision to back him all along. We'll be speaking to Marquez Chris Winterburn a little bit later on about the tide that has turned at Old Trafford, their improvement over the past few months and how Paul Pogba suddenly looks the part after it looked like his career at United was dead and buried not too long ago. But before all that, we have a slumpy Liverpool to unpack that has pressed Phil and I over a long and dreary month. But before that, there's one man who hasn't had the best of starts to 2021 and that's Frank Lampard, who was given the road this week after his sights hit ninth in the Premier League table after 19 games. Just five points off the top four places, but with no real sense of direction on a strongest starting eleven, failing to get the best out of their very expensive summer signings. And now club legend Frank Lampard, who was given the poison chalice after just a year in management with Derby County, has suffered the fate of so many managers before him. His first season went very well, I suppose, all things considered, um, amongst the transfer ban that Chelsea had. But he did have a team coming off of a Europa League win. And now after a half season, the Chelsea powers at B are not backing Lampard any further. And it looks like Thomas Tuchel, the German speaker, expected to breed life into Werner and company. In the, um, I suppose inside is wonderful and all that. But coming into this job, nobody knew better than Lampard how difficult a job being the Chelsea manager is. What do you think went wrong for him this year? Yeah, it's just interesting that you mentioned Lampard's insight. When AVB got the boot, he basically came out and said, well, it's all on the manager, not the players. So he shouldn't be too surprised how it's gone down for him. But I think there's a few re- things that have gone wrong for him. I think, you know, ultimately he was a stopgap while Chelsea uh, had the transfer ban. Um, and it did suit him, that lack of pressure of having to integrate new signings, having to win trophies, etc. that Abramovich obviously expects from all of his managers. Um, and that went quite well from last season. I, I didn't quite buy into the logic that he'd created this young, youthful Chelsea side full of, you know, British talent. There was a couple of players he integrated, obviously Mount and Reese James, etc. But I mean, if you look, um, there was a lot he, he could have done as well. Callum Hudson-Odoi, etc. He still had Kante, 
um, Kovacic in his midfield, relied on Giroud heavily later in the season. Um, and obviously he's fallen out with Tamori, who's now gone to AC Milan, who's very highly rated as a centre-back. Um, but I think the writing was on the wall for him when Chelsea spent so much money in the summer. It felt very similar to Carlo Ancelotti in 2004 when that very expensive squad was starting to be put together. And it just felt like, you know, it was a matter of time before Abramovich had, had his eye on somebody else. Um, this season, I suppose the biggest problem he's had is, is integrating those new signings. I don't think he really wanted Kai Havertz. I think that was more of an Abramovich um, signing because obviously he has a lot of faith in Mount in that number 10 position, which is Havertz's probably best position, although he did play as a false nine in the second half of last season for Leverkusen and played very well after a tough start last year um, when there was a lot of pressure on him after his first season. And then having to play Werner on the left wing when really he should be up front in, in more of a 4-4-2, which is what he's always been used to in Leipzig. So there was just too many you know, tricky parts to put together for him. Ziyech then was injured, and I think he was would have been somebody he would have been banking on who has more experience than Werner and Havertz as well. And then, again, trying to integrate Thiago Silva in his mid-30s into the Premier League, who suffered heavily at the start against Southampton and West Brom. He was able to upgrade the keeper, but it was not before Kepa um, cost him some points. Chilwell was probably the most successful of the summer signings so far. Um, yeah. But I just think there was... It was too big a job in the end, really. I mean, if you look at how he got the Derby job, I don't know if you read the article today. Um, it was basically Harry Redknapp calling up Derby and saying, you need to hire Frank Lampard. And they didn't want to initially. Um, they wanted to go for somebody with more experience, but he kind of convinced them in his job interview in some car park at half seven in the morning. Um, and that's how he got the Derby job. And then a year later, he's working for Chelsea. So uh, considering how Abramovich works, knowing he can afford to sack and hire managers not having to worry about payouts and he can rebuild teams you know overnight with the money he has available to him I don't think it was ever going to last too long um I think overall he tried to do the right things um but I think he knew as well the comments he was coming out with in the last few weeks you know he was saying it was all down to the players then snapping at the journalists and the athletic um he he, he looked like a man who kind of knew his time was almost up um and that media praise if you like that he got last season some of it probably unjustified a little bit um you know it didn't bail him out this season um and I think it'll probably be a relief to him to be honest to to not have that pressure anymore and he could go on to be a good manager but I think he needs kind of more of a Gerard at Rangers experience where you know you have time to fail before succeeding and we've seen how that's gone for them now uh, and even Solskjaer who's had 10 years of managerial experience um so, yeah, I, he'll probably get a, an under-21 England job or, or a job back in the championship, and then, then we'll see how it goes from there. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough watch the last few weeks because you could see he was uh, really struggling. Phil, um, Lampard kind of leaves the post with, um, with that interview last week um, where he had the cut-off Liam Toomey of the Athletic, um, which is in kind of stark comparison to the Athletic's praise of him last year. Um, remember the article referring to his uh, his use of WhatsApp and getting the coaches on into a WhatsApp group was some sort of um, amazing kind of move that had Chelsea performing at, at, at all sorts of levels. But uh, I think you kind of made a point, you know, that and it kind of is very much in contrast to what Enda said, that he was a little bit of a stopgap. And I think if you'd asked Lampard that at any stage during his manager 
during his time there that he would completely have disagreed with that. But it, it seemed kind of performative. Um, you know, there was a couple of moments where you know he he it was more about himself than than anything else. And I think you know Ken Early made a very interesting point on on second captains today when you know you consider Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who you know comes into the same boat as as being a, a club legend trying to, to trying to steer his club forward hasn't slated any of his players you know he's very much um kept to, to the defense of his players whereas Lampard has been you know quite skating of that and you know when he's having digs with Jurgen Klopp on the sideline and you know cutting it into a, a journalist um in press conferences it hasn't really shown a, a great light on him overall do you think yeah I completely agree. I like that word performative. Um, I think I was talking to Paul Little about it on Twitter. Uh, Earthfile of this parish, but um, what struck me the more I thought about it was like if you think about the manager who kind of made or who was his manager when Lampard became one of the best four or five players or midfielders in the world, it was Jose Mourinho, and it feels a little bit like a Jose tribute act, like the extreme self awareness that the camera is on him the performative nature of some of the things he was doing, the row on the touchline, even the the um, the song with Derby, uh, the lead song after the playoff, after the bet leads in the playoff and Lampard was singing along with the song. Everything kind of felt like a performance for the camera that he was playing up to a manager character um, in a similar way, but just not, not as effectively as, as Jose, like the master of these sort of tactics and antics, especially in his younger days. Um, it really kind of struck me that maybe like he learned a lot at, at Jose's knee and maybe just isn't as adept at, at, at kind of putting it out there. But I think the, the the cut off the players that he had, I think, was the most telling blow. I mean, coming out as he did against Liam Toomey was bananas, given the positive coverage he'd gotten. There was a couple of negative, not even negative articles, just reflecting the new situation within the club. And he, he, he kind of had a, had a real cut off and kind of unnecessarily... But when you're putting players under the bus, I mean, it's a sure sign that things are gone. And I think, as you were saying, he knew I think it was coming. And as Enda said, it was inevitable nearly from when he got the job that there was going to be a point where he was going to have been taken past the, the limits of his ability at this stage in his career. Because he had one grand year at Derby that made that matched up to expectations, basically. At the time he was there, Derby were a regular playoff team pushing for promotion. He took them to basic par and then got the Chelsea job off the back of it. Um, and he, he's just been over-promoted to a, to, a, to a point where, as Ender was saying, there's a squad there now where there's actual pressure to deliver because they spent 200 million plus in the summer. And when the results started to go the way they did and Chelsea's history, and Frank will have known that as well. I mean, he's lived through enough of it as a player. He would have known that the club don't tend to hang around, especially now when their Champions League places are in real threat. And even a club like Chelsea, with the money they do have, Champions League is a very important step for them to take. So I, I think, as I said, he he did try a lot of the right things. Personally, I, I don't have a lot of time from the way he carries himself. He's kind of a bit of a superior feel or whatever. And I think he definitely was very image conscious about it. But I don't think it can come as too big a surprise to anyone, apart from maybe... Uh, Redknapp senior and junior who seem to think it's the biggest shock uh, under the sun but look at I mean that's family free isn't it and Henry Winter as well apparently you yeah, compared it to yeah. uh, shooting Bambi but I, I think another element as well is once Abramovich gets 
a type of manager in its he- in his head, whether it was Mourinho or Conte, he always moves fast. And obviously he has a soft spot for Tuchel. So once he was available, I mean, you know, like it's already been announced tonight, you know, so look how quickly that moved. So that would have been agreed quite some time ago. So, you know, once once Roman has made up his mind, it's, it's really game over. So, um, yeah, everything just kind of went against Lampard in the last few weeks, to be honest. Mm. On Tuchel, um, I mean, there's already been some very questionable um, opinions thrown out about him in, in the English media of, from people, I suppose, who are only familiar with his time at PSG um, where he won two league titles. And in fairness, if you if you want to be ultra-critical, you know, should he have added the Champions League um, against Bayern Munich in the summer? But, I mean, he's following a very similar career trajectory as to what Jurgen Klopp did, um, you know, managing Mines for, for five years, went on to manage Dortmund, did quite well there. Um, the situation around, I mean, Timo Werner um, and his lack of uh, of his, his poor performances, I suppose, since he joined the club. And it seemed like Abramovich was keen to get in a German speaker. Um, Ralph Ragnick apparently turned down the opportunity to come in for, uh, for on an interim spell. Um do you like Tuchel is far from a, from a bad manager, but do you think Chelsea are kind of asking for trouble by kind of cornering themselves into a situation where they need a German manager in and a German speaker to try and get the best out of their very expensive German players who haven't been performing very well? I, I think Tuchel is he's one of those, isn't he? He's the modern day. You know him, and he succeeded Klopp at two clubs, um, which is a tough act to follow. In fairness, um, at Mainz, where Klopp was hugely influential, even though they did get relegated at some point. But as a player and a manager, and at Dortmund, he had a bit of a mess to clean up because Klopp's last season was was a big struggle. Um, and he he did pretty well in both jobs. There was a bit of a naivety to him at Dortmund. I felt they were a very attacking team. You know, often with the a four one four one formation. So, uh, and as we saw at Anfield, you know, couldn't really hold on to a lead against any sort of team um, that had a high level of quality to punish their naivety. But he did develop a style of play that was very attractive to watch and very, very modern. At PSG, you felt he was never fully in control of of the side because, you know, PSG, uh, they're a club that just deliver the players to the manager as opposed to building a team or the way he wants but he, he is extremely highly regarded there is a strong German contingent there now in Rudiger uh, Havertz and Werner so I, I suppose it was the obvious available choice for Abramovich to go for I he's highly regarded by obviously Hugginstein and, and a lot of people in the media Um, he did okay with PSG in terms of their run last season but in the final they really really struggled but succeeding Emery was, you know, a pretty straightforward job. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see how he'll go at Chelsea and how much control he'll get over the side. I, th- I think that's the key, really. Um, Conte really struggled with the fact that he was being given players he didn't ask for, like Drinkwater uh, and Ross Barkley. Um, obviously, I, I would assume Frank Lampard didn't really want Kai Havertz, considering how important he saw Mount as the number 10. So... If Tuchel can get full control over this Chelsea team, I think he can have a lot of success um, and we know they'll spend it the summer. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes. It'll certainly be probably the biggest test of his career, I suppose, considering the um, the scrutiny that'll be on him now as well. 
Um, so mm. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing how it goes because he was somebody I, I did find very interesting at, at Dortmund in particular. I mean, Henrik Mkhitaryan used to talk very highly of how he fixed his, you know, issues and lack of confidence and really helped him progress as a player and a person, you know. So he does seem to be a very good man manager. So I am looking forward to seeing how we can transfer that now to these Chelsea players who no doubt be slightly wounded, some of them, um, after Lampard leaving. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he goes. be interesting as well um, how he deals with the media. Um, I mean, he's he's known for kind of being spiky, uh, similarly, I suppose, to, to Lampard. Um, so I think anyone who's kind of expecting him to come, to come in and be this kind of jovial, Klopp sort of character uh, might be left disappointing, but I suppose that could be um, interesting to watch at the same time. Um, Phil, I'd, or to Liverpool, we have to. Um, I think when we left off late last year, um, we were quite, I suppose we were both quite bullish about um, about Liverpool. Um, it hadn't been pretty, but they'd beaten Leicester. They were through to the knockout stages of the Champions League in Pretty impressive fashion. Um, it was probably one of their best group stage runs um, of the Klopp era, if not well before it as well. Um, they were grinding out wins, and I think there was a sense that they were kind of ticking along nicely. Um, and I suppose we kind of had this assumption that they would automatically be amongst the title race, uh, considering there was a lot of inconsistency elsewhere. But um, I think it all went downhill pretty fast. You could probably um, pinpoint the Midland game where. Diogo Jota got injured um, in a what was essentially a 100% meaningless game um, as a huge moment in the season. And that was followed up with draws against the likes of Fulham, um, West Brom and Newcastle. There was the defeat to Southampton um, where Ralph Hasenhutl kind of felt his knees and in tears had finally beaten his, um, his, his German counterpart and, and now more recently losing to Burnley, which was between failing to beat Man United um, on two occasions. And I suppose you went into that first game in, in the league with, you know, the real hope that he could finally find a couple of goals and, and get three points. Um, so suddenly they're, they're six points off top place. Is this a slump? Is Can they get out of it? Or do we kind of have to change expectations now um, that, you know, they very much have a really tough title race on their hands to, to stick with... Uh, with the teams there in the top four. Yeah, uh, very good summary of what's been a weird sort of five weeks, I suppose. Um, I think, to answer your last question first, the season is sufficiently weird and we've seen sufficient evidence from other teams that six points isn't unbreachable. The problem is that Liverpool have been in this funk for a while and it's kind of seeped into their bones nearly. <laughs> it's kind of infected every area of their play. Um, it's funny, you you pick, pinpointed the... Midgetland game and Jota's injury I think for me the turning point in this season has been the West Brom game and Matip's injury because um, while he's always been in and out all season and he's not going to play any more than he's not going to play three games in a week he mightn't even play two but to have him missing for a couple of weeks and to mean that Liverpool were relying on Henderson at the back or Nat, uh, Nat Phillips or Reese Williams really took away the last vestiges of kind of comfort that Liverpool had in their centre half and I think they've been playing with a bit of fear ever since so I think they've been 
less willing to take risks. They've been less willing to commit to fullbacks higher up the pitch, which just makes them an easier target to deal with. They're also dealing with the fact that the front three are a bit, were a bit out of form before the weekend, maybe. Uh, and then you're also taking out the the midfield, the heart of the midfield in Fabinho and Henderson, who are quite good. First of all, at keeping attacks going when they break down, and second of all, at stopping stopping sides counterattacking on them. And um, so this kind of domino effect of no Virgil van Dijk, no Matip, meaning that the fullbacks are tucking in more because they don't want to leave Reese Williams one-on-one with somebody like Marcus Rashford because we saw how that went. Um, and then that means the pitch is less open for the front three and things are just getting a bit dodgy. It looks like they're really short on confidence because they're such a systems team and the way they attack is such a practice pattern of play that's been totally disrupted and I just think they're struggling to figure it out on the fly because they're dealing with people like Henderson who will be quite good at trying to help people through it as playing out of position or he's not in the team at all. Fabinho who's another important cog in that kind of tempo that Liverpool build up. He's he's playing at centre half. So I think we're starting to see finally the impact of that injury to Van Dijk especially and the injury to Gomez. Um, I'd like... Given what Liverpool have shown over the last two years, the mentality as much as the the kind of actual tactical nous and and displays they've put on would lead me to believe that they're not absolutely out of it. But it is probably the biggest task they have faced since three seasons ago. So like last year, obviously they won the league. Two years ago, they were they were neck and neck with City and lost by a point. I think this is their stiffest challenge since before those two seasons, especially the way they're playing now, just that lack of confidence, the way that City are coming into really good form, that United are just plugging away and you keep waiting for points to be dropped and they're not dropping and Liverpool are facing into a very tough run. The next 10 or so games are very tough and so they'd want to kind of catch on to themselves pretty quickly or they will be out of it. Six points is doable. It starts to drift out to 8, 9, 10 and you're really starting to think that you can forget completely about the title and start worrying about top four. Um, so it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know where things are going to go from here. We saw signs on Sunday maybe that they were more willing to commit Alexander-Arnold and Robertson higher up the pitch. I think, for me, that they need to make peace with the fact that they're going to leave whoever is playing centre-back a little exposed sometimes. Yeah. Most sides aren't going to be as good as Manchester United are at attacking that. Um, now admittedly they're they're playing Spurs next so that's another really good team at it but I mean for example against Burnley they were they gave Burnley too much respect for my money they didn't push the fullbacks up high enough they didn't take enough risks um, and then they ended up getting punished when they don't when they didn't create chances to score and it stays in the law you run the risk of kind of random bad luck or bad decision making or mistakes or whatever and it was kind of a combination of all of that that saw them got beaten but I think Sunday show the path forward, a bit of bravery and acceptance that you're not going to keep many clean sheets maybe, but you might create more chances because I, what happened over those four games or five games, whatever it was, like 15 years that they weren't scoring, um, it, like, it just, it, it's not, it's not conducive <laughs> to doing anything. I mean, you can keep as many clean sheets as you want, but like, it was like 1913 since Liverpool scored, it felt like it just fucking stretched on and on. <laughs> and like Sunday, I was actually happy. I don't. They lost and losing to United is never good, but I was happy with the performance because it was at least a step towards bravery yeah. and and like 
Liverpool have never been shy under Jurgen Klopp, and for the last four or five games or whatever it's been, they felt a bit shy. Yeah, it's interesting that you actually mentioned the West Brom game because, you know, before coming on tonight, that was the game that I was going to pinpoint. Not so much the amount of injury, which obviously was a big loss, but, you know, something that seems to happen with him regularly. But it was probably the first time watching Liverpool under Klopp where I felt they had just mentally turned up and ticked the game in their head and thought, three points here tonight, move on. And I don't think the early goal helped them either. And, you know, from watching United concede a lot of late goals in the last few seasons, I felt their lack of intensity, their lack of putting pressure on West Brom. I mean, Klopp was very edgy on the side in the first half, getting angry at players. I think he could sense that the press and and the intensity that Liverpool have played with for the past three to four years just wasn't there anymore. And it was pretty, it just felt like that equaliser was coming and and Liverpool didn't really have an answer or response, whether it's a lack of energy or lack of enthusiasm. And I I suppose looking at the wider issue, I mean, every single player who signed for Liverpool in the past 30 years has been told they need to win a title, they need to win a title, you know. And it's finally happened for this group and you have three forwards in their late 20s. Henderson's been playing Premier League football for 11 years. You know, Van Dijk has been in the league for six or seven years, like, I started to think, you know, is is that it for the, these players in terms of the enthusiasm they have to go again, which is probably the toughest thing of all when that pressure is on and, and you know, you're the team being hunted. You know, you've, they've won the Champions League as well. So they've won everything in terms of a player, everything you would want to win in, in the space of 24 months, which is an incredible achievement. And, you know, Klopp's very intense as well. Um, and as we saw at Dortmund, that kind of can run out as well if if, if the players aren't willing to just put in that effort season after season. And I just felt even before, you know, they went on that drought, the West Brom game would have been the one where you looked at and thought, I, you know, I, I had doubts as to where Liverpool have the energy or intensity to really put the foot down again. And listen, we know the Anfield crowd, as I say before, it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a big influence for them. And, you know, it's a big loss for them, especially they would have been riding the wave this season of being champions and, and all that would have gone along with that. And that makes the the challenge of retaining your title a little easier. But I feel that uh, they, they just don't seem to have the energy they used to have. Even the match at the weekend, that was a kind of a free hit against United because, I mean, a long cup run at this stage when you're still fighting for the league and the Champions League isn't really what either United or, or Liverpool need at the moment. But even when Salah put them 1-0 up, it was it was a bit like, yeah, it was a bit subdued celebrations. I, I didn't feel as a United fan that, you know, we were going to be battered now 3 or 4 nil. you know it was all a bit subdued and and they were still sitting back a bit too much I know the fullbacks were pushing for it a lot more compared to the the game at Anfield but still not to the quality and level that we've seen in the past two to three seasons so um it has surprised me from the intensity we saw at the Leicester game and maybe Jota has had a lot to do with that in terms of fresh blood um and you know he's been a massive loss but even the team selection, why did he play against Michelin? Why did Mane and Salah play against Avila teenagers? You know, there's, uh, Jonathan Liu wrote a, an excellent article this morning saying the, the fun has kind of gone from Liverpool. You know, there's, there's just not that kind of freedom and, and rock and roll kind of approach that they have. It, last year was very functional and professional and they were very efficient. But compare that to two or three seasons ago where it was just kamikaze, nonstop entertainment. And with Liverpool, there's just a lack of kind of fun anymore and Klopp picking fights with Des Kelly, as we talked about before. And, 
you know, it's all a bit, it's a bit more of a struggle, you know, to get behind them um, as a neutral. I, I have no interest um, in getting behind them. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you're a neutral and you're watching Liverpool lately, you kind of would be probably looking elsewhere for your kind of next hit in, of adrenaline and, and attacking football, you know. So um, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of get out of that funk in, in the next few weeks. Because, uh, as Phil said, the fixture yeah. list is really difficult now for the next few weeks. I mean, Phil, you alluded to it there, um, how well they had played for, for those couple of seasons, nearly to um, an unsustainable level. And, you know, to be in the midst of, you know, a kind of a an never seen before title charge, you know, to be thrown into uh, uh, the middle of a global pandemic where you have the stadiums emptied, you know, to kind of fall over the line in a way um, and to be able to kind of pick that up and, you know, the there's a lot of factors probably outside of their control, you know, in terms of the schedule, the injuries, um, this, you know, the fan situation, because you have to say that the Anfield crowd are, are worth a handful of points um, every season, you know, dragging them forward when, when they are kind of a little bit lackadaisical. But in terms of, you know, issues within the Liverpool's control, um, you have to say, you know, has it been completely negligent uh, not to go out and 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 spend money on a, on a centre back um, this month, um, because you know the the issues are evident. Where you know you have the front three who are struggling, but you've taken Fabino and Henderson out of the midfield, um, and you're kind of plugging them into to centre half, and they've done perfectly fine. But the end, at the end of the day, you know you want them to in the middle of the field, um, helping out the attack, um, and when you're relying on 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 Joel Matip, who's kind of become our our Ledley King character where it looks like he can only, you know, play one game a week. And I'm, I'm not sure, even sure how, um, how proactive he is in training if, if, if they're kind of wrapping him in cotton wool at the moment. But I mean, it seems very negligent not to go out and, and, and buy a centre half considering how much of a knock on effect um, the Gomez and Van Dyke injuries have been. Like in the summer, and I'm pretty sure we would have talked about it on, on, on the podcast. It felt like an area they could be looking at. So, like, when you have two fit senior centre-halves and Joel Matip and Fabinho, we still said they they could have looked at bringing somebody in. And then... Well, they sold two. Uh, and Sorry, I'm forgetting now. Uh, Hoover oh, yeah, to sorry. Wolves. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, like, at a minimum, you're ta- you should be thinking about replacing Lovren. Um, before any injuries happen, you could have made the argument. Um, but then the injuries happen, and I just, like... I cannot see how they don't think like I, I actually I'm falling over my words because it doesn't make any sense to me at this stage when they're playing a 19 <laughs> year old who was playing conference football last year and uh, I, not Phillips 21 I think or 22 but who he was playing second division German football last year and there are options as well as as you said two of our midfield options um, and it's having a really detrimental effect on the team I'm not expecting them to go out and sign a Virgil van Dijk replacement that's going to magically fix all the problems. I would take Socrates as a senior centre-half who isn't <laughs> 19. Like, I, I just want a, a, a player I recognise as being a, a centre-half who can play Premier League football. Yeah. Mustafi too, player. he's free. <laughs> and uh, it's so, bad enough that I take it. Because, like, <laughs> nothing against Reese Williams at all. Like, I think he's done quite well overall in trying circumstances, but he, he just isn't quick enough to play 
in the way Liverpool play. He's, like he could absolutely mm. have a very good career down down the divisions, and he's got he has a lovely range of passing, and that way he's actually fitting in quite well. But if you put a ball in behind him, as we saw against Villa in the cup, like Louis Barry scores away from him from a pretty basic ball down the side of him. He just he doesn't have the pace. Neither does Phillips, and it just drags everything that Liverpool are trying to do further back the pitch when Liverpool are trying to go further up the pitch and make it as small as possible for the opposition to deal with. Um, I, I, I just And Klopp come out and said, no, he hasn't said I wanted a centre-half and I couldn't get one, but I mean, he damn near as close has. Um, so I, I think FSG, when the, when the injuries happened, Liverpool, as we know, were going quite well. And even as, I can't remember what date Liverpool went top of the league by beating Spurs, but I mean, it's about what, six weeks ago at this stage, whenever it was. Liverpool went top of the league by beating Spurs and bet Palace 7-0. And at that stage, FSG must have been pretty delighted with themselves and their decision-making that they hadn't uh, sanctioned the deal for a centre-half coming into January because Liverpool were top of the league minus their two best centre-halves. And now they're behind West Ham, as we record now. West Ham have won to go above Liverpool in the league. And Liverpool are on their knees for a centre-half. So I think FSG took a gamble that Klopp and the squad will be good enough to, to get top four because ultimately that's what the business model is built on for FSG is consistent Champions League qualification uh, and when they made the decision it looked like a, like a good bet and now that bet's gone into reverse um, but I think it's too late for anything to happen now so I think Klopp is going to have to and I'm going to have to make my peace with uh, with Reese, Nat and maybe Jordan Henderson as centre half options for the rest of the year yeah, it's it's the joy of having American owners, isn't it? Um, they're kind of stuck in their ways. Uh, Liverpool were the masters of kind of those that twenty million to forty million bracket. Really, if you look at all the players they've signed within that, you know, Salah, Mane, Firmino, Fabinho, um, they've probably been the best in the world at that. But that's a tough strategy to keep up with when you have so many more teams with more money now. I mean, yeah. West Ham taking a ten million hit on Seb Haller, for example. You know, um, so. I think there's only so long that can last. Obviously, people will say Allison and Van Dyke, but that was really just reinvesting the Coutinho money. Um, otherwise, that those transfers wouldn't have happened. Um, and they don't seem to be willing to to genuinely help out Klopp when he needs it, um, uh, as opposed to kind of just implementing a strategy that's based around the money they made from the previous season. Um, and I, and I think that's that's the biggest challenge for Klopp now. He's He was quite fortunate, which is a good thing for him, uh, uh, with injuries in the past few seasons to key players, which is a credit to him because that was something that he really struggled with when he came to England first. Um, but now that that's turned, Liverpool don't really seem to have an answer. Um, and, and Phil, you made a good point after the United match, even though Fabinho was unbelievable on the day, Liverpool lose so much in midfield when he's not there. Um, and while Thiago is still settling in, um, and he's been a bit unlucky, you know, to have five matches mm. without a win, five starts without a win, for somebody of his quality when he was the best player on the pitch for the first thirty minutes against United, is you know a bit unfortunate for him. Um, but they missed the just the interplay that Fabinho gives them and, and that solidity. Uh, and you know, I I really think Klopp has a decision now to make in terms of should he keep playing Fabinho, particularly at centre back or rather just take the hit that they'll concede goals, but they'll be able to outscore the opposition. Um, because I, I think he's just such a big loss in midfield currently in the way Liverpool are, have played in the past two seasons. Yeah, and I mean, the 
business in the summer, um, you know, they scrounged to buy the left back Costas Chimikas um, from Olympiacos. Um, and at the time, I think they needed to, to sell Jay and Lovren first to fund that. Um, and he hasn't played yet. And, you know, obviously Andy Robertson then has probably gone on to be our most untroppable player this season. So um, it is very frustrating. Um, and Andy, you mentioned Thiago there. I mean, watching Thiago and, you know, he's been very lucky with injuries um, and whatnot, but he's kind of playing a lot of the Fabinho role in that he's, you know, he's getting stuck in with, with last-ditch tackles and, 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 you know, making those little um, midfield fouls that you want Fabinho to be in there doing and, and Thiago to be on the kind of on the outside picking up the loose ball or whatever. And, you know, he's kind of been thrust into uh, trying to cover two different roles at the same time um, when you want to kind of ease the pressure on him. Um, Phil, you said West Ham are going ahead of us in, in, in the in the league. Uh, I'm just looking at their, their starting 11 tonight. Craig Dawson on the score sheet. Um, and I can't believe I'm going to say that we'll probably take Greg Dawson for a for a couple of months um, to try and uh, ease the pressure there. Stephen Cocker is going well in Turkey. If you want to bring him back, he was about <laughs> the five four yeah. Norwich game during the week. He still plugged in. If you fancy a striker again, you know. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Rob Little. He's the guy who ran away and left his wife for a young. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better on it. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there... Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're joined by Chris Winterburn of Spanish publication Marca to talk about everything going on around Manchester United. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Uh, no, so we're last time we had you on, um, kind of around September, October time last year, the tone was a little bit more gloomier um, around the club, but they've stuck by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who's taken them to the summit of the league. Um, and this is the fifth round of the FA Cup past Liverpool um, at the weekend. How much of this remarkable rise over the past few months do you think, I suppose, is genuine? Like, is it sustainable? Um or is it just kind of a a nice uh, patch under under Oli now that um, the kind of Bruno and a lot of players are playing well? I think you've got to look at it in a few uh, different ways. If we go back to the back end, well, I say back end, whenever football started again last season, when United turned uh, the corner somewhat, that football to me anyway, wasn't sustainable. It was a lot of counter-attack heavy, relying on the speed of Mason Greenwood on the right and Rashford on the left. And whilst it was great to watch and really uh, got results, once players started getting tired, particularly Bruno Fernandes, I think we started to see 
they struggle to break teams down. Whereas this season, whilst there's been some abject defensive performances at the beginning of the season, the football now is actually much more sustainable. They're going out and beating teams and controlling them. Maybe not so much Anfield because uh, I think, particularly in the first half, uh, Thiago was sensational. But in the cup game, that was a Manchester United side that controlled a Liverpool side, at least um, compared to how they've been playing them in recent years. So the reasons for that, people are a lot more comfortable in the positions, they've gelled, and new players have come in. I think Edinson Cavani, as difficult as this is to explain, gets the best out of players behind him because of the way he presses from the front. That's actually been his biggest uh, addition that he's brought to Manchester United. I think he's allowed players behind him, particularly Pogba, to play in a much more mm, relaxed way. Do you think the club were kind of justified in, in sticking by Solskjaer now with this form? Um, I mean, for a long time, he, he, he wasn't so much criticised, but it was a lot of kind of question marks over whether he was the guy to, to bring them back to the top table. Um, I mean, he seems to have them you know, in such a strong position now compared to to where he took over. Like, do you think, you know, maybe around a year ago where a lot of people were wondering, is Ollie the man um, for the job? Do you think the club have, have finally been justified in kind of holding on to him through, through that bad patch? I think, in a way, they've been given too much credit for holding on to him in this instance, based on how early they've made decisions on uh, managers in the past since uh, Alex Ferguson retired. Because obviously the Moyes situation was a difficult one because David Moyes, obviously things had gone really badly. That was a dramatic fall from grace from champions to seventh. So I don't think there's there can be many people that say that wasn't a decision that needed to be taken because the club was in a real free fall. But then if you look at Van Gaal and Jose Mourinho... Whilst there's been clear problems with both of them, and, and fans will tell you some of the football they've seen isn't great, or wasn't great, I should say, um, both were dismissed before their time had run its course. I think you could argue you could argue Mourinho, despite all the players he had had signed for him, he didn't quite yet have the defence he wanted. And Louis van Gaal was always looking at a much more longer process even if he only had one year left on his contract when he was dismissed so I think they've actually maybe dismissed managers too early and we've (laughs) sort of now given them the Roman Abramovich treatment of giving them credit for not sacking a manager when really United under Solskjaer had never got to a point where it had been as bad as it had been under Mourinho and Van Gaal maybe the results were poor Mm. before lockdown last season and particularly the Burnley home game felt like a, a real bad moment but I I don't think it had ever got to the stage where it had been that bad that a decision needed to be made and obviously this is the first time they've let a manager get players develop them, it's the first time we've seen a United team actually improve players for many years and they're just starting to get better and better playing with each other so I think it would have been a stupid move to cut that off at the knees early even though they did somehow contrive to go out of the Champions League We'll get on to some of the individual players I suppose over the next while but I mean if you want to pinpoint a moment where kind of Man United's fortunes uh, took a turn for the better it was probably around this time last year when Bruno Fernandes uh, walked into Old Trafford what what's he brought to the club um, from a fan's perspective I suppose from the outside looking in he kind of seems to be that kind of that leader character 
um you know kind of leads by by example um you know doesn't take you know second best from his teammates you know you'd often see him um roaring at like Luke Shaw um or whoever's there to you know kind of bring them forward he seems to be like the perfect signing for Man United um when they needed him most um what's the kind of fan perspective on Bruno considering how good he's played over the last year Well, I think one of the things, and particularly fans uh, who I've spoken to have said the same, whilst a lot of the leadership and, and uh, off-the-pitch qualities have all been appreciated, especially by uh, the coaching staff at Manchester United, he's just brought quality. If you think back a year ago, Manchester United were going into a lot of games with their main attacking threats being either Jesse Lingard or Andreas Pereira, and fans will try and convince themselves all these players are are of a good enough standard of the getting better, despite their advancing years. But then you look at where both of those players are now. I know Lingard's had his off-the-field problems, but uh, Pereira's at Lazio playing a bit part role, and Lingard's likely to leave on loan this month. And then you look at Bruno Fernandes, and you think the numbers he's put up, the assists, the goals. Obviously, Aguero's been injured, and Kevin De Bruyne's uh, off the for- off form, but is there a more prime candidate if he keeps this form going uh, than Fernandez to win player of the year. That's the sharp difference in quality that I think made the most difference. Everything else just comes along with that. I think it's the difference in real top quality that United have finally managed to get. Fernandez has been the player to carry to uplift a team that Manchester United thought they were getting when they bought Paul Pogba back. When in reality, we've actually seen the best of Paul Pogba when he's just playing under the radar, dovetailing nicely with Fernandez, and actually just playing a a more drawn back version of his game in a deeper midfield position, especially in Chris, you, you mentioned Pogba there. We've seen since the Leipzig game, really, when he was dropped after Raiola's comments. What surprised me the most probably is the defensive discipline in his game that we've probably not seen since the World Cup semi-final against Belgium, where that was probably one of the best performances defensively of his career. United fans are split as to saying, well, he's playing for a move away. Others are saying he's just trying to, you know, contribute to a team that is now winning and seems to be functional with him in it, as opposed to depending on him all the time. Now that Bruno is racking up the goals and assists that maybe Pogba was harshly expected to provide um, within a more dysfunctional lineup um, under Mourinho at times. Do you see his future still away from Old Trafford or is there a chance that, you know, considering his relationship with Solskjaer, which obviously seems very positive and the performances that he's putting in lately, um, is there a chance that he does have a future at Old Trafford? I think he's probably still likely to go because I think he always planned to move on from Old Trafford by this point anyway, irrespective of how things have gone. I think the aim was always Real Madrid, and I think that is something he still wants. And whether it's something he'll get, he's doing a lot better job of convincing people at Real Madrid that he will be worth a heavy transfer fee now than he has been doing in the last 12 to 18 months. And obviously, I think it would be disrespectful to say he's playing for that move, but I think it's one of the side effects of him playing this well is that Real Madrid, unless you're a centre-forward who scores 30, 35 goals a season, they're not bothered how good you look on the pitch. They're not bothered what 
nice turns you can do or, or cross-field passes. Unless you're a centre-forward, Real Madrid are only interested in how you can help their team win the European Cup. And I think we've seen from Pogba, he's so capable of playing a more disciplined um, midfield role. We've seen it with France. And it's almost as if when he places importance on games, you see him at his very best when he's... It might even be a subconscious thing. When he's focused, he's at his best. And after the Leipzig game, it was difficult to see how he could even get back in the side. It was such a bad atmosphere, especially with what Mino Raiola had come out and said before that game. And whether that atmosphere permeated inside the dressing room, I don't know. I suspect probably not. But since then, we've seen a Paul Pogba that's done the simple things, just kept them simple. He's done them well. And I think that's one of the things his game was missing. United don't play out from the back as well as Bayern Munich or Barcelona when they were at the Pomp did. There's just It's impossible to do with Harry Maguire and Eric Bailly in defence. But they're a lot better now because there is confidence they can give the ball to Pogba and he will not turn on it, lose it, look for a, a pass that's not on. He will just give the ball to Luke Shaw and then actually get into a position to receive the ball from Luke Shaw again. And that's sort of why the team's been a lot more of a cohesive unit. He's playing his best football at Manchester United, and ironically, he's doing the least that we've ever seen him do. He's just doing the simple things absolutely perfectly, and that's why we're seeing a better team. One of the criticisms of Oli in the past, um, and we've seen it a lot here in the Irish press, um, on off the ball and, and in you know newspapers, is that he's too nice. Really based on his you know lack of throwing the players under the bus or, or snapping at interviewers as we've seen with Klopp and Lampard in the past few weeks. But if you look at his treatment of Lingard, you know, he he moved Gallo on fairly quickly once he, he decided that he'd contributed everything he could in the first few months at United. Um, what's the feeling from, you know, the people you've spoken to in terms of how tough he is with the squad? Um, obviously dropping Pogba for that Leipzig game as well after Raiola came out with those comments. Is he tougher than many people believe yeah absolutely he's got and it might not be necessarily a toughness in the way you'd think of of other managers having he just has very high standards and he knows what a team needs to be successful because he's been part of it during his playing career and he has those high standards i mean you've got to remember he was in a dressing room with roy Keane for over five six seven years you're going to keep those standards, otherwise you wouldn't be there that long. And I think that we're seeing that with his coaching. Also a point to make is he's from coming from a position of strength now. He can afford to make these decisions because he's got a team that's picking up points, getting results. He's got Fernandes in that attacking position, so he, he doesn't necessarily need Lingard or need to pander to players who maybe aren't performing. And that's something we've seen in the previous two administrations at Manchester United is Players have been playing because there's no one else. There was no option. And that was one of the problems with the team often looking disjointed. So I think Solskjaer's definitely tougher and got a higher level of discipline than people on the outside give him credit for. But I don't think he's ever going to be one of the uh, managers that throws his player under the bus because he just he, 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 there's no need to do it. There's no benefit of doing it. And I think he's all about the benefit of what can benefit Manchester United, whereas other coaches have been what can Do you think at this stage of his career, which, you know, a decade of management at um, Molde and the United um, under-23s and Cardiff, obviously, that experience, 
do you think he has a ceiling as many people claim or is there a lot more to come from him? It's uh, something I like to compare to um, American football. A coach is only as good as the quarterback he has. You can have some wonderful minds for the game, but if you don't have someone who can throw the ball, you're not going to be in a job very long. And whilst this sport is slightly different, I do think quality of players comes into it. Very few coaches we see get the opportunity to coach players of the quality of Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes. And I think he's getting the best out of them. And they're sort of carrying him along as well. I don't know. It's difficult to say. And as you say, after a 10-year managerial career, you'd think we would start to see patterns and, and his limit by now. Is he Jurgen Klopp? I suspect not. Would he be? We've seen he wouldn't be able to achieve the same success at other clubs. But I just I think he's working well with the players he's got. I don't know if he's... He's certainly not tactically astute enough to say, take a team like uh, Ralph Hassenhall at Southampton. I don't think he'd be able to do that similar job, if that makes sense. Um, another thing is, we see a kind of a, a transfer philosophy forming under him where it's more either younger type of talent, not the type of signings like Schweinsteiger, Matic, etc. Do you think that will continue into the summer? Um, or, or do you think he'll he'll aim for that more experienced type of signing? In terms of the nuts and bolts of the transfer policy, it's actually not changed in terms of what's being spent and the just grave difficulty that Manchester United seem to have in getting any deal over the line. But I think we all know why that is, and it's a bit uh, redundant to go into it uh, this evening. But in terms of the actual transfers and players that are being identified by the scouting team, and Nicky Butt is having a, a large influence on that particularly with the younger players they are getting players they feel fit into what they want to build in the team and that's how you build a team and that's we're seeing the benefit of that in terms of the future transfers we're getting to a point now with Manchester United squad where you're going into a summer and you're not thinking they need six seven players they're miles away you're going into this summer and we don't know what will happen in the next six months United might win the league they might fall away catastrophically who knows but you're going into the summer transfer window and you're thinking, OK, they need another central defender, especially as Victor Lindelof appears to have a chronic back problem, which has been bothering him for the best part of 40 months now, and a right back because Wan-Bissaka is limited going forward, as everyone knew when he was signed. but And he has improved in that, to be fair to him, in that area, but it's clear he's not Luke Shaw on the right. So there might be a need to sign a right-back who can provide competition and more of an attacking impetus for certain games. And then the right-wing position, because there isn't a natural right-winger in the squad. And ironically, the two natural right-wingers are probably uh, Palistri and uh, Diallo, who haven't played yet. So I think that is a position they might need to look at. And obviously, Jaden Sancho's name will get mentioned. But I do think they're going to continue this transfer policy. Leds, I, I don't um, see it changing. And I'm sure Phil will agree with this point, Um Luke Shaw was sensational against Liverpool um, in the league game at Anfield. Um, has been very good now for the last couple of weeks. Um, it must be very encouraging to see a player who, I mean, was very much written off under under prior managers. Um, famously had that kind of falling out with Mourinho. 
Um, and I mean, he's still only 25. Like he still has a long career to go. It must be very encouraging as a fan to to see his um, incredible uh, increase in form the past while. He's playing the best football of his career, and I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say the level he's playing at now has eclipsed anything he hit whilst he was at Southampton. I think everybody always knew there was a player in there, but he took so many knocks. And I don't think people fully appreciated, and myself included in this, just how big an impact that, that injury against PSV would have had on him. It took a year out of his career just straight up physically in recovering, and then everything after that, he probably had to learn how to play the game again from a mental perspective because he maybe doesn't want to put his body in the same uh, sort of positions and he wants to protect himself. So that was probably another six-month period. And then there was the managerial shuffle and he got lost in that. So I think it's always been a case of Luke Shaw just needed time. And obviously he's working harder on his fitness now. We can see that uh, on the pitch, even if he still retains his um, naturally robust frame. But I just see a player there that's got confidence now and he's playing to his potential. And I think that's something that United haven't been able to do in recent years. There's been so much change that players in these situations would have not a hope in hell of getting to this point because there would be such change. They would always get lost in the shuffle. And I think we're seeing one of the benefits of continuity. You talked about right wing, but obviously the number nine position has been a, a big issue for United Martial and Rashford trading that position. Martial kind of nailed it down last season, but has struggled badly this season. Cavani has come in and been a very positive influence, but uh, at 33, perhaps that's not sustainable. Um, Who would you like to see as as United's number nine going forward if they were to mount a title challenge? Well, there's this big uh, elephant in the room and his name's uh, Erling Haaland. That and, and I, I suspect the same for every club. He is the guy who there's no worries about him. The only thing that will stop him getting 600 career goals is injuries. I've never seen a player like him have, have that nose for a goal since Van Nistelrooy. I just think, and obviously Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi have scored so many goals, but in a sort of different way. This guy just knows where to be in the box and he knows how to score. I think I saw his record the other day in his career, 72 games and... And 73 goals or something very similar to that. That That's an astonishing record. So obviously he'd be the forward anyone would want. But on the subject of, of a number nine, I don't think it's the priority that many would say, although I do take your point on board. I think one of the issues Manchester United have is Anthony Martial because he's 25 now. And a lot of the discussion was... They can't sell him, they can't let him go because just in case he turns into a great player at somewhere else and then a couple of years down the line, Manchester City buy him. But he's getting to the point now where he's still young at 25, but he's getting to the point where he should be at his prime. The The scope for development is much, much smaller. And he's not been great this season. Is it just poor form? It could be. But I just don't know if that's going to be something that's sustainable for him, especially when Mason Greenwood is getting better all the time. If he can... Um, keep developing physically as he has been doing the goals will keep coming and he'll be a starting player he could play through the middle as well I think and there's also going to likely be another year of Cavani so I think it's difficult to to gauge where Manchester United are in that position I think there's more urgent needs Question Chris um, and for you end as well I suppose because I know you're a big fan of his um, and I suppose 
Are you a little bit disappointed or um, would you have been expecting a little bit more from Donny van der Beek um, this stage of the season? Um, I mean, he's coming to a kind of a crowded midfield and, you know, from the bits and pieces I've seen of United over the course of the season, um, McTominay has looked good. Um, Fred has had his moments as well. And obviously you have Pogba and, and Fernandes thrown in there as well. But, you know, considering the, the money spent for him, would you have expected to, to have gotten more out of Van de Beek um, six months into the season? I think the the question, the, the part about money spent on him is is somewhat irrelevant when you consider what Manchester United are up against in the Premier League. And this is by no means trying to suggest Manchester United are the plucky underdogs or paupers by any stretch of the imagination. But nobody sort of asks these similar questions of Ilkay Gundogan, who cost near enough 25 to £30 million pounds before his, his sudden burst into form. Nobody was asking these questions about the money spent on backup players for other teams. So I think that's something we've got to keep in mind. I think Van der Beek has got so much natural quality that he will be fine. I don't think it's necessarily a problem. We've already seen this season there's games where he can be effective in. Yeah. But he hasn't played as much as everyone thought, or he would have liked himself. But I don't think there's this concern that people are trying to portray because... It's a squad game. And United are developing a much higher quality squad than they've had for a long time. And if Donny van der Beek is a player who you call on every third game or so moving forward, that's a very, very healthy yeah, position to I be in. Yeah, I mean, all, all reports team. say that himself and Solskjaer are on the same page in terms of his development at United. I, I thought he would play more this season, but he's a, he's a different type of player to Fernandes and Pogba in terms of, you can see that Ajax style of retaining possession maybe the safe pass when it's on as, a, as opposed to more progressive pass. But when he has played, I feel anyways, he's looked very effective. Um, and his first time passing can be a huge asset in, in United's counter-attracking transition going forward. But as long as he re- remains patient, I think United will be fine because he's, uh, you know, from what I saw at Ajax anyways, he's a very high quality player. Um, and and someone who who can really contribute to the squad. And as Chris said, you know, many other teams have have developed their squads and spent a lot of money on it. And there's been no kind of analysis or scrutiny. I mean, Nathan Aki, for example, at, at Man City, I know he's had an injury, but ultimately he was a backup kind of central defender slash left back. Um, and that didn't get the type of scrutiny that we get from Van de Beek now. Not held by some quotes that were attributed to his agent that turned out to be false as usual with United, but I think he'll be fine overall. And and he's still in his early 20s anyways. So as long as he understands his role in the side and the squad, I, I think he'll be fine um, because he's had enough contributions to suggest that he can be a good player for United going forward. I suppose that image of him um, looking glumly in the stands probably didn't help the perception. That yeah, he was the master of that earlier in the season. Yeah, looking depressed on the on the stands, but you know, yeah, he's probably just cold. Chris, I suppose top of the league at this stage of the season, you, your expectations were probably fairly limited going into into this year. But I mean, is there hope now that you can kind of go on and sustain that title charge for the rest of the year? Um, obviously you're kind of going to be back into that Sunday, Thursday, flip around with the Europa League soon enough. Um, 
it'd probably be nice to to get for Ali to get over that semi final slump that he's had in, in cup competition as well. I suppose overall, what are your what are your hopes and expectations for for the season and end as well? Well, I think um, with regards yeah. to what you say, there was no expectations of a title challenge uh, this season for Manchester United, but they did finish third last year. So there was all, there were, the expectation was to close the gap between themselves and Manchester City and Liverpool. This is a bizarre league in the sense that it's... I remember um, putting a bit of a thread together on this. It's a league, a throwback from maybe five, six, seven, eight, maybe even ten years ago, in that you do not have to be superhuman to win it Liverpool and Manchester City have done unbelievable things with the way they were playing last three or four years and the points they've been able to get that was the achievement of a team that had every area in the squad filled everything was perfect we know Manchester United have been left short they've been left painfully short in positions and again we know why that is but they would never be able to win a Premier League title in the era of a 100-point team. It just doesn't happen. They don't have enough players. But in this era we're in now, where the title and the Premier League table sort of looks like it does in 2008, 2009, you can afford to have a couple of positions where you're not 10 out of 10 in terms of strength. So they're doing much better than I think anyone thought. But it also needs to be sort of tempered with other teams aren't doing as well as they have done previously. I don't think this season is necessarily an indication that United are going to get 100 points next season. In terms of the cup competitions and the scheduling, like you said, Manchester United would do well to get out of the Europa League as quickly as possible. And I know that sounds disrespectful to a, com- to a competition, but they don't need it this year. There isn't likely to be that mad glazer-induced panic of we've got to win the Europa League to get into the Champions League because we've cocked up our league form. There shouldn't be that this year. This team should focus on the FA Cup and the Premier League with a priority on the Premier League. And the semi-final thing, this is a matter of personal opinion. I think some people, obviously for him, it'd be great to get over the semi-final, who do and win a trophy, but does it overly matter? I don't think so. I think fans would happily take a Premier League win over a cup win, I think, again, it's just a matter of what an individual um, sort of prefers. I remember Arsene Wenger saying uh, once that winning a cup final is great for the supporters for a day, but then afterwards it sort of dissipates the feeling and that then you, if you don't sort of progress in the league, you're looking at an isolated cup victory. Obviously, this was before... Uh, the latter years of his career when that was all he could hope for. And uh, have you uh, altered your expectations, I suppose, now that you're looking down on everyone else? Yeah, I mean, it's tough not to get caught up in it. I mean, the closest United have been to a title challenge is probably, uh, I don't know, 2015-16, where they were, if they'd beaten Leicester that November, they would have gone top of the league. So to, to see them... Up, up at top of the league or competing at least in January is is rare in the past seven seasons. But I don't think expectations have altered dramatically. I think, you know, lots of cliches are being rolled out now as take every game as it comes. But um, 
you know, we, we spoke earlier about Liverpool and, and the fun slightly not being there anymore. I think it still is there with United and, and Solskjaer and there still is a bit of, of a novelty to the whole thing. Um, but it, it's a very exciting squad to get behind now as well. And, and if Diallo can cr- contribute to that as well going forward, which all reports suggest that he will, um, you know, who knows what can happen. We said in one of our earlier pods in the season that, you know, this will be the type of season where the mid-70s points could win the league, which is very rare in the past four to five seasons, considering the standards that City and Liverpool have set. Um, it's still looking that way. So th- there's a lot of games to come um, and it's a very competitive league this season. So we'll just have to wait and see. But um, trying not to get too excited yet. But um, if United can be up there competing with, you know, a handful of games left, I think that would be you know, a huge success for Solskjaer. I'm not too worried about the semi-final stuff. I mean, you know, four semi-finals in 12 months shows a very competitive team, yeah. which is what you would hope for. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not too concerned by that stuff at the moment. And if you look at those semi-finals, you know, um, a, a couple against City, the, they actually played very well against Sevilla in the Europa League. They just couldn't finish their chances. Um, so it's not it's not too much of a concern. They ran out of steam against Chelsea in the FA Cup last year as well. As Chris said earlier, they looked very tired at the end of last season. So overall, if you analyse those semi-finals, there's not too much to be concerned about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, listen, there's just a better feel around United at the moment, which is really what you would hope for from your club. Um, and, you know, if they can keep it going, it would be great. Great stuff. Something to keep an eye on over the course of the season will certainly make for a a more interesting title race. Chris, thanks for coming on this evening. My pleasure, guys. Happy to be here.